All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I want to welcome you and wish you a happy Father's Day. Um, all you dads, this is your one and only day. So enjoy it, right? Happy Father's Day. Like all family-oriented days, uh, I want to acknowledge Father's Day can be complex. Um, some of you have wonderful fathers, and you have the privilege of actually celebrating with them today, which is awesome. Some of you have full families, and you get to be celebrated, which is also awesome. Others of you had fathers who left too soon, and we mourn with you today. Others have fathers that were never there to start with, and we feel that pain. Uh, friends, I am thankful that uh, you've decided to spend part of your Father's Day with us. Father's Day is uh, a reflection of fatherhood, which is an incredibly complex experience. So dads, we are thankful for you, and let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you are the good father, the one who loves, the one who never leaves. You're the one who blesses us with dignity and a future. We thank you for our fathers. Thank you for the complex gift of family. Pray, Lord, that you will bless the joy of those who celebrate and comfort the sorrow of those who hurt. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts this morning. So we're going over to Acts chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you. And uh, in our Bibles, we're going to be going over to page 927, page 927, Acts chapter 18. If your Facebook feed is anything like mine, uh, you get a regular dose of pop leadership encouragement um, as you scroll through your feed. Stuff like, failure is never final until you fail to try. I mean, that's deep, right? It's good. It's good. Uh, your, your will to will only be as strong as your want to. That's helpful, right? Get that stuff scrolling across. Um, you can't climb the ladder of success if you are wearing the robes of failure. Hey, that's good stuff. I mean, here's the thing. That stuff can be encouraging, right? Those kind of pithy little insightful comments that are designed to kind of get us when we feel lazy or like we're supposed to give up and kind of give us a little, a little motivation, right? Um, each is true and helpful in their own way. And, and if you have just one more assignment to do, sometimes that can be helpful to remind you, man, get up and go do the assignment or one more early morning meeting or one more uh, challenging thing. But here's the thing. I, they reflect a way of looking at life. These kind of leadership pithy sayings that, that are really just... Um, like no-brainers for us. We just are all like, yeah, absolutely. That's the way life is. We see life as a ladder. Life is, is something to be ascended and conquered. Life is uh, an object to climb. The higher you are on the ladder, the more successful you are. And the goal of life is to get higher on the ladder, right? The top of the ladder, well, that, that's the mythic goal of life. Whatever's at the top of your ladder is what you're trying to achieve, right? And so the top of the ladder might be financial and personal freedom, right? If I can just get there, then I will be able to do what I want when I want. I'll be able to take the trips that I want. I'll be able to, you know, maybe it's fame, right? Getting the praise of all those people you don't know and don't care about. Just, 
you know, the craving of affirmation, then I'll be important if enough people know me. Maybe it's luxury, enough comfort, um, enough vacations, or even a vacation, right? For some of you, it's ultimate security, the ability to be secure, to have enough money or to have uh, enough whatever to uh, finally feel secure in life. Here's the thing, whatever you're chasing, that, that's what you've got at the top of the ladder. And so every day is spent climbing the ladder. Now, here's the challenge, you guys. We as Americans think about life this way. We as Americans really do approach life this way, but Jesus did not. And if we're followers of Jesus, he's often going to lead us in ways that feel like losing. If we're actually following Jesus, there are going to be times that he leads us, and it's going to feel like we're going the wrong direction. There are going to be times when suffering and disappointment are part of our path. When disappointment of dreams, when our efforts aren't good enough, when our skill is not masterful enough, when our best effort just falls short. There are going to be other times where God will actually lead us to lay down the good we've longed for and worked for, that others might be blessed. There are times when you're following Jesus that he's going to lead you in ways that feel like losing. But the end of that path is glory. The end of that path is the very presence and experience of life himself the very thing we're all yearning for and working for. So that's kind of the principle we're going to be digging into and looking at in our passage this morning. Let's take a look at our passage. Uh, We're looking at Acts chapter 18. Uh, We left Paul last week in Athens after he preached, and we're going to be picking up as he leaves Athens. and, um, And then we're going to summarize the passage and then dig into our theme. All right, so Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of, and of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. 
And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples, the word of the Lord. All right, you guys, our passage today covers what is, it is generally known as the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, last week, we left Paul in Athens after he had uh, preached a, a sermon at the, uh, the Areopagus, um, and now Paul moves from Athens to Corinth, which is about 50 miles west. Um, let's go ahead and get that map up there. Almost. There we go. All right, so... Just for reference, we've basically followed Paul all along this northern region, up north of the Aegean and the Mediterranean Seas. He's now moving over here in the lower left-hand corner from Athens to Corinth. And, uh, and, and then in Corinth, he stays for a year and a half. And that's summarized in a single verse. In verse 11, it's like, he stayed for a year and a half. <laughs> kind of interesting. Luke doesn't seem concerned with giving us all the details of all the apostolic activities, every action Paul did. He's giving an overview of the spread of the early church, and he zeroes in on specific events that help us understand uh, the challenges or the victories uh, associated with the spread of that. Many important things, I'm sure, happened in Corinth over the course of this year and a half, but Luke summarized it into a single verse. While, we're, while he's there, we are told that, that Paul supports himself as a tent maker. He had been trained in making tents, and, uh, and so during this period of time, he supports himself uh, by making, marketing, and, and selling um, his own tents. So, uh, Silas and Timothy show up a little bit later. Uh, they were up in Macedonia, which is uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, the churches that we had already studied that Paul had, had started up there. When they showed up, they brought a financial gift. So these churches that were already, they were being persecuted, they were moving toward poverty, moved in generosity toward Paul, and they sent a financial gift to him, which allowed him to uh, work full-time, in uh, the spread of the gospel in Corinth. Um, toward the end of his time in Corinth, uh, some of the Jewish leaders rose up against him. Uh, this is a pattern that we see a lot. Paul will move into a new area. He'll share the gospel. People are curious. They're welcoming. There's the uh, collection of new believers, the forming of a new community. Then some of the leaders in that city become jealous of his influence and of his presence, and they start rising up in resentment toward him. Uh, and so we see that now they, they bring him before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, and bring an accusation. Gallio won't even listen to it, doesn't even let Paul speak in defense of himself, just says, look, this is religious stuff. Uh, I'm here to represent Roman business, uh, so I'm not even going to talk to you guys. So he kicks them out. Uh, so then they, and, and here's where it gets a little, there are some past parts that get a little confusing. They go grab Sosthenes, who is the leader of the synagogue, so a Jewish leader, and they beat him in front of um, the proconsul. And, and uh, Gallius refuses to do anything. Who the they are, we don't know. 
Um, it's really vague at this point. So we don't know if, if Sosthenes had become a believer, a follower of Jesus, just like Crispus, the, the leader before him. And so these are now the Jews uh, basically beating Sosthenes, a new believer in Jesus, in order to try to provoke Gallius to, to take up the case and actually do something because of political and social unrest. Um, or this could just be the Gentiles that were in the court that are getting sick of the, the Jewish leaders causing trouble. And they went and grabbed Sosthenes, who would have been the lead accuser against Paul, and drug him out into the street and beat him there. We don't know, but we do know Sosthenes had a bad day. Uh, that, is, that is accounted for us in Scripture. We don't know exactly why, but, but Sosthenes had a bad day. Paul hung out in Corinth for a while longer. Um, their accusations against him didn't take root. He was able to keep ministering, spreading the gospel, uh, investing in the local church until he decided it was time to leave, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. He stopped in Centuria to get a haircut, which is an interesting bit of information. Uh, it was connected to a vow. We don't know what the vow was. We don't know why he got his hair cut. We do know that that is part of uh, a Jewish custom. Often, Jewish men would get their heads shaved or their hair cut uh, in connection with a vow they made to the Lord. We don't know what his vow was. It's awkward that he got it cut there because normally he would get it cut in Jerusalem. So like the vow would be, I will go to Jerusalem to worship. Once he gets there, he gets his hair cut. He got it cut before he left. We, we don't know. What we do know is this. It means that Paul never walked away from his Jewishness, if you want to put it that way. He, he, his primary identity was, was now a follower of Christ. He was a follower of the Christ. He was a Christian. But as a Christian, he was still Jewish in heritage and in culture. And he did not walk away from his personal history. He didn't walk away from his personal heritage. He still um, practiced Judaism uh, and, and did it in a Christian way. And we know this is important later because he'll actually be in Jerusalem at the temple um, going through ceremonial cleansings when his final betrayal is taken place before he gets sent to Rome as a prisoner. So he gets his haircut. He ends up going to Jerusalem. Uh, you might miss it in the text because it says he went up to the saints, which is a funny way of saying he went down to Jerusalem. Um, but in the Bible, anytime they go up to Jerusalem, they're going up. It doesn't matter what direction they're going. So when we say going up, we mean going north. In their context, anytime they go up, they're going toward Jerusalem, okay? So he went up to Jerusalem, which means he went south to Jerusalem, and then he went down to Antioch, which means he went back up north to Antioch. Antioch is his home church. That's, that's the first church that sent him out as a missionary. Those are the people that laid hands on him, commissioned him to be a missionary, to go out and plant churches. And so this is the second time he's come home to his home church. That's why it's the end of his second missionary journey. That's how the scholars classify the different journeys. When he comes home to Antioch, they're like, okay, that culminates the second journey. And at the very end of our passage, he sets back out along Cilicia, Galatia, and Asia, going through the churches that have already been planted up there to, to strengthen them. That's the beginning of his third missionary journey, and we'll get into that next week. All right, so here's the thing. I want to dig into this a little bit. We've looked at the pattern that Paul has gone through that has led us to this point, right? Paul arrives, he shares the gospel, people receive it, some question it, some challenge it, but there's a warm reception, there's, curious, there's curiosity, inquisitiveness, people become believers, a new community forms. After a new community forms, religious leaders become jealous, they then persecute Paul, and, um, and as a result, uh, he ends up being driven out, but he leaves the seed of the church in that community when he leads, leaves. So this, so far, you guys, he has been he has been dragged before councils. He has been beaten in the streets. He has been locked in prison. He has even been stoned to death. 
well, they thought he was dead. He didn't die, right? Outside of uh, Galatia. They, they actually stoned him. They thought he was dead, uh, and he got up and walked away. Um, and he goes on, and he does it again. Like, that's the pattern. He, he just goes from one city, and, and he spreads the gospel. People become believers. The, the religious leaders rise up against him. They persecute him. Uh, and then he goes on and, and does it again. So it was a big deal when God said to him in Corinth, hey, Paul, you get to hang out here for a while, right? There's no persecution's going to, you're going to be safe here. So he ends up spending a year and a half in Corinth, which is the longest he's spent in any city up to this point as he has been uh, moving around. And, uh, and while he is there, um, he ends up supporting himself, right? So even though he's not under physical threat, it doesn't mean there's not struggle and hardship. Um, normally, when he came into a community and he started sharing the gospel and people became believers, those believers would help fund his ministry. They would give ministry, and in a sense, give money to help fund his work so that others could also become believers. He didn't take any money from the Corinthians because the Corinthian city was full of religious hucksters, people that came in and prayed on the weak and the gullible and sold religion for financial profit. And so he determined at the outset that he would take no money from the Corinthians. So he made tents to support himself until those churches up north sent him a gift so that he could be uh, freed up to, to work full time. And so he went through the hardship of, of uh, financial uh, struggle for the spread of the gospel. Then we meet Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple who become long-term friends of Paul, key ministry partners. And they're always, not always, but most of the time listed in that order, Priscilla and Aquila, which is interesting because she's listed first. In this culture, in this time, that's really significant. A lot of times the wives aren't even mentioned, um, but in this case, not only is she mentioned, she is mentioned first, which indicates that, that she had a, a prominence in the story in some way. Some would argue that this was because she was the Roman citizen and that Aquila was protected by her Roman citizenship. I don't think that's the case. Uh, the writers of the New Testament didn't really care who were Romans and who weren't. Uh, we don't find that highlighted anywhere else. I think more than likely what this means is that she was the one with the stronger teaching and leading gifts. I think she was, she was the dynamic leader. Aquila and Priscilla were a dynamic ministry team, um, but she probably had the stronger gifts. And as a result, when people thought of them, they thought of Priscilla and Aquila because she was the one leading out. Um, so these two become very close with Paul. They labor with him for the remainder of his life. But I, I want to pay attention to the circumstances that led to their meeting. We're told in verse 2 that they came from Rome during the reign of Claudius. Now that tells us it was right around AD 50 because we have extra biblical uh, engravings that help us date both um, Claudius and Gallio. And so we can date with, with pretty, pretty accurate that it's right around AD 50 that this takes place. Priscilla and Aquila were Jewish believers in Rome, which is interesting because Paul hadn't been to Rome. None of the apostles had been to Rome. What that means is that Paul's strategy was working. He would spread the gospel in, in cities of, of uh, commerce. People would become believers there and then carry the gospel with them as they left. So the gospel had already reached Rome, even none, though none of the apostles were. There was already a, a Christian presence there. And Priscilla and Aquila were expelled from Rome by Claudius because they were Jewish. Not because they were Christians, but because they were Jewish. So think about this, you guys, because this is kind of weird. Why would a ruler just kick out everybody who is Jewish? Like, what do you hope to accomplish with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, like what problem is that going to solve? 
What, what good is that? You just take everybody, and just because they're Jewish, you're like, you're all out of here. Now, it seems weird, but it's actually incredibly common, and I would say actually predictable in times of turmoil. Uh, this seems to be a pretty predictable reaction. Political leaders do it to pacify unrest and make it seem like they're doing something. When there's a problem in the culture and the problem in their, in their uh, environment, uh, there's something wrong, right? So let's identify an outsider, a minority group, and let's kick them out. <laughs> what that does is it just makes it feel like you're, you're doing something. Instead of focusing on the actual issues and problems, it focused everyone on a common enemy and a perceived common threat. See, it's much easier for the leaders to find scapegoats than it is for them to solve problems. It made people feel safe, even if it didn't actually do anything to increase safety. And so, as a result, um, good people went through extreme hardship, right? And, and I wanna, that's where I'm getting with this. I want you to see this, right? So this is what happened in Kyrgyzstan when we had a team on the ground in Kyrgyzstan. They were, they were in a community for two years, and they were doing uh, improvement projects in the community. They were bringing in prenatal uh, education. They were doing all of this good stuff in this community in Kyrgyzstan. And then the walnut forest, they, they lived in the shadow of the world's largest walnut forest, and it was becoming threatened by political forces, and it created all kinds of unrest in their community. They were powerless to do anything about that, but the elders of the community rose up and kicked our team out, right, because they were outsiders. It didn't do anything to solve the problem, but it made everybody feel safer. It made everyone feel better because they were able to actually do something in a situation in which they were powerless to do something, right? It happened there. It's happening today in our own country. I read this week about a young man who, a veteran of the armed forces, somebody who actually served in the U.S. military, protecting U.S. interests, risking his own life. He's been here since he was two years old. He came legally, but there was a glitch in his paperwork. There was some sort of hang-up, and, and as a result, he got picked up by an ICE raid, and he faces deportation to Iraq. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the country. He doesn't know anybody there, right? But he's been picked up in this sweep, and, and, and he's now facing deportation. What I'm trying to get is this. man. We can read about Priscilla and Aquila being kicked out of Rome and just read it like information. We don't really understand what took place here. Think about it. What, what would happen if suddenly you were uprooted from your life? You were told you had to leave. You could grab your possessions, but you had to leave behind your community. You had to leave behind your business. You had to leave behind your, 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 your economy, your assets. You, know, you can't sell your house. You don't have time to sell your house. We're not going to let you set up a home in a new place. You're being kicked out. Priscilla and Aquila were grabbed and sent out under duress. They had to leave behind the life they had built. All they could take with them were the things they could carry and the skills they had. That's the condition in which they arrived in Corinth. And they arrived in Corinth as tent makers because that was the skill they carried. And so they went to work making tents. When Paul arrived, he identified with them both as believers in Jesus, but also as tent makers, like they had something in common. And so Paul ends up moving in with them, and they end up living together for a year and a half. And they make tents together, and they do ministry together, and they become deep and lasting friends. In fact, Priscilla and Aquila become some key ministry partners that, that Paul really depends on. We're going to look next week. Aquila and Priscilla are the ones that um, uh, come alongside uh, Apollos, who was a new believer, and help him grow in his gift. He became one of the greatest evangelists of the early church. And, 
And, and Paul really leaned on these guys. So let me ask you something. A lot of good came from this. A lot of good for Priscilla and Aquila, a lot of good for Paul, a lot of good for the spread of the, of the church, of people that had never heard of Jesus. So, so was it good that they were driven out of Rome? Was it good that they were displaced and forced into this suffering? Good things came out of it, so, so was it good? Well, the answer is no. It wasn't good. It was unjust. It was wrong. It was a cowardly act by fearful and reactionary leaders. But God brought good things out of it. There was real suffering that resulted from real injustice. But there was also real blessing that grew out of God's intent to work through it. It kind of sounds a lot like Jesus. You know? It really does. It sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus suffered injustice at the hands of cruel cowardly, vindictive, self-protective men. He suffered injustice, and it was evil. But God had the power, and he had a plan to use it for good. Jesus was treated unjustly, but God used that injustice to work blessing. Jesus was abused, and God used that abuse to bless. Jesus walked the path of death, but God turned it into the path of resurrection. And it's because of that that we have the gospel. It's because of that 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 we have this incredible message of love. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die. And then God raised him from the dead so that when we believe in him, our sins could be forgiven, our guilt could be removed, and we could be covered with his glory. See, we're called to believe this as Christians. This is the the hallmark faith of what makes us followers of Christ, this belief in this hero, this substitute, the one who took my place so that I could share his place, right? This is our confession of faith. But we often forget that we're not just told to believe in Jesus. We're told to follow Jesus. And that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus isn't just a historical fact that we're called to believe in. It is a principle we're we're called to walk in. That we are called to both believe and imitate. Because this is the path of the Christian life, you guys. That's why Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, you have to take up your cross and bear it daily. This is where we have real conflict of paradigms as Western American Christians Uh, of ways of looking at life. As Americans, we really do see life as this ladder of success. That's just almost intrinsic to the way we think, this idea we just need to climb higher, we need to work harder, we need to be more successful. At the bottom of this ladder is all the stuff we're trying to leave behind, right? Or, Or not fall into. Failure, humiliation, helplessness, suffering, pain, weakness, and ultimately death. At the top of the ladder is everything we're trying to get to, right? Success. And however you define it. Glory. However you define that for you, right? Different people have a different idea of what their glory would be, right? It might be security. 
or you finally have, you're able to, to avoid all of the, uh, the financial pitfalls, all of the risks, all of the, you can afford the best insurances, you can afford the best security. You know, maybe it's security, maybe it's fame. You know, this idea that I can be known, man, people will know my name, and, and that'll mean I'm significant. Because when people know my name, then obviously I must be important. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, influence. Who knows? It's, in the end, it's your definition of life. Because here's the thing. We don't just want to be alive. We want to have life. You know the difference, right? One's biological life. We all want to be biologically alive. That's a good thing. But we all have a definition of what makes biological life worth living. The fullness of life. That's what's at the top of the ladder for us, is the fullness of life. It's that thing that we're chasing, that experience, that hope, that dream that ultimately is going to make this life for us worth living, the fullness of life. And so as a result, we often see life as this progressive challenge of moving up the ladder, moving progressively closer to this thing, this goal, this experience, whatever it is that we've put our hope in. And we follow our life plan, and, and we make our plan, and we work our plan, and, 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 and we tend to idolize those people that are ahead of us, right? That we look up the ladder, and we're like, man, I, I want that person's experience. I want that person. There, that's who I want to be. I want to be in that spot with that experience, right? We tend to emulate people who moved more quickly up the ladder than we did, right? We're like, holy cow, they were way more efficient, way faster than I was. I want to be like them. What are their secrets? What are their tips? We tend to resent the people who get in our way, right? We tend to resent the people who, who if if, if my goal is fame, I resent the people who remind me I'm not famous, right? Or remind me that I'm human, and the reality is I probably shouldn't be famous, right? I resent the the people that, that are kind of in my way on my way up this ladder. As a culture, we spend billions of dollars annually on coaching, encouragement, systems, secrets, on how to get to the top of this ladder. It's ironic, it's even in the church. You you would have no idea how much marketing email I get every single week from secret systems on how to grow the fastest, biggest church in your community ever, right? I mean, I get this stuff bombarded with it all the time because the goal, obviously, is to grow the biggest, most famous church you possibly could in the shortest amount of time. That's what it means to get to the top of the ladder, and we have the secrets that'll help you get there. We look at life as a ladder, This idea that we just need to continue ascending, continue moving up, continue moving toward this goal. But you guys, this is not the image God uses to help us understand life. This is not what God describes as success in His kingdom. The path of Jesus is not this path of ever-increasing glory, moving from win to win, winning, winning, winning. The path of Jesus is not about increasing personal glory, influence, power, and comfort. The path of Jesus is about increasing humility. The path of Jesus is about increased service. The path of Jesus is about growing in your ability to love and bless others even if they don't love and bless you. The path of Jesus is the humbling path of love. Paul wrote to the Philippians about this. Now, remember, the Philippians were part of the church. They were in the process of being persecuted. They were, they were in the process of being impoverished. 
But they sent money to Paul while he worked in Corinth to help support him. They gave out of their poverty generously that, that God's work might continue to move forward. And, and in uh, Philippians chapter 2, this is what Paul admonishes them to. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. He said this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means in the very essence of God, was God himself, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, the experience, the glory to be selfishly held on to and not sacrificed, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. All right, so notice, this is a glorious description of Jesus. But this passage isn't about Jesus, it's about us. Paul is saying, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Think about the world like Jesus thinks about the world. See the world like Jesus sees the world. Now, when you read this passage, is this a description of somebody who's determined to work his way up the ladder of fame, glory, power, and influence? (laughs) Or is this a description of somebody who willingly humbly descended the ladder into all the stuff we want to leave behind. Into all the stuff we don't want to have anything to do with. Into all the failure, all the brokenness, all the helplessness, all the pain. He took the lowest station. He did the lowest job. He became a servant. And as a servant, he went to death, and not just any death, the death of a Roman cross, from which we get our English word excruciating, from crucio. It, is, it, is, it was the most uh, horrific form of human execution devised. He went to the cross. He became a servant, and he did the job nobody else wanted to do, that everyone else might be blessed. Does this sound like somebody who's determined to climb the ladder of success? And yet, how does it end? It says, as a result, God highly exalted him. Wait a minute. I thought I had to climb the ladder to get the exaltation. I thought I had to climb the ladder to get the fullness of life. I thought I, I, thought I had to, to really, you know, try hard, do better, succeed, m- you know, make myself great if I was actually going to get the fullness of life that I so want. See, here's the irony, you guys. That ladder, it goes to the wrong place. He's not climbing a ladder of success. He is following a very different pattern of life, a pattern of life, death, and resurrection. And that can be symbolized by a J curve because the curve looks like a J, right? Yes, right? So it begins with life, it moves into death, and it moves into resurrection. I think this is a much better paradigm, much better image, much better motif, if you want to go there, that, that describes how life actually works. I was introduced to this about a year ago. I got to spend a day with Paul Miller. Paul Miller is an author. He wrote um, several books, uh, A Praying Life, A Loving Life, Love Walked Among Us. I highly re- recommend everything he's written. 
Uh, it is phenomenally insightful. He leads a ministry called See Jesus. It is an international discipleship ministry. And I got to go with uh, a group of, of five other pastors, a pastoral cohort, and just spend a day with him, picking his brain and sitting with him. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. He introduced us to the J-curve. I had actually seen it previously, but I don't think the weight of it had really uh, settled on me. I didn't realize how insightful this was until we explored it uh, in that environment. But I think this is a much better paradigm that represents how we approach life as believers. Here's the thing, you guys. We all crave life. There's no denying that. And in fact, I, I don't think we should want anything else. God created us to crave the fullness of life to crave significance, to crave love, to crave uh, joy, to crave pleasure, to crave... We want these things because we were created in the image of a delightful God to delight in the things He created. Uh, So we're not talking about not having deep desires. We're talking about how we hope to fulfill them. What is the paradigm? What is the path we will walk to actually find significance, to find pleasure, to find meaning? How are we going to get there? You guys, if you're determined to be on the ladder, you're going to set your hope on moving up. The only way to have these deep desires fulfilled is to, to move up, to become uh, more, more glorious, more, to have greater security, to get more influence, to, to attain more luxury, right? And as a result, suffering is going to feel like a distraction at best and as a punishment at worst. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, like, and we can do this in Christian circles too. It's, it's just our culture. It's America. Like, like you work really hard. You put in the time. You did the work. You deserve the result. And then you don't get what you worked for. That suffering feels unjust. I, I, I raised my kids right I put all my energy in. I did my best. But my family didn't turn out like I expected it would. I worked hard in my career. I labored hard. I took all the classes. I put in all the time. I put in the overtime. But I just got passed over for partner. And there's no visible hope of further advancement. I worked hard on my marriage. I was faithful. I loved. I served and sacrificed. But my partner cheated on me. I deserve better. See, when you view life as a ladder, you see it as this mathematical equation in which when you put in the effort, you deserve a result. I should be able to move up a rung. I should be able to move a little bit closer to my ideal, my hope. This thing that I've set my hope on is the fullness of life. And when we don't get it, man, it feels like a distraction at least. It feels like a punishment at God. It's like, God, how could you not bless my effort? How could you not? See, what ends up happening is we feel incredibly entitled. I put in the work, I deserve the result. I put in the effort, I should be able to move up. So we end up angry and often bitter. Here's the challenge, though. Even if you're able to move up the ladder, it won't take you where you want to go. That's the great irony. 
The people in our culture that have had the greatest success moving up the ladder are often the people who are most unhealthy. <laughs> because when you're able to move up that ladder into your dream, your effort, your, you just become increasingly narcissistic. The boundaries of your joy shrink. You're able to have more and experience less. You, you get what you want, but you don't get what you need. The people who, in our culture who have it all are often the emptiest shells of human beings because it's the wrong ladder. It's set on the wrong wall. It takes you to the wrong place. It's the wrong paradigm. It's not real. It doesn't take you to real life. It takes you away. But if you're determined to follow Jesus, you're going to set your hope on a very different goal. That goal is, is to be to grow closer to Jesus and become more like Jesus, to, to grow in your experience of God's glory, not your own glory. To grow in having the mind of Christ, learning how to see the world yourself and people around you like Jesus does instead of determining to shape reality according to your own vision of what it should be. And as a result, that means we need to see suffering in a whole new way. Not as a setback, a destruction, a distraction, or, or, or a punishment. Suffering is a means to an end. We need to see it as an invitation to grow in our communion with Jesus. Because there are things in us that can only be killed in suffering. And there are things in us that need to be killed. Pride, narcissistic self-obsession, the poison of our soul that leads us to think that we should have all of the freedom and power of God without any of the responsibility of God. We want everyone to treat us as if we were God, to submit to our whims, to make us happy, to bend to our will without us having to actually carry the responsibility of being God. That's what's at the top of the ladder, and, and that's death. We need to see suffering as an invitation where, where God's going to kill that stuff that is killing us. You know, often the worst part of our suffering doesn't come from the suffering itself. I want to be careful here because suffering is real. It hurts. When things don't turn out like you hoped they would turn out, when people betray you, when you are let down, when things unexpectedly turn against you, it hurts and that pain is real. But often the most painful part of our suffering isn't the suffering itself. It's the entitlement that we bring into the suffering. It's the pride of our self-accomplishment, our determination that, that God should bless us because we deserve to be blessed. That often becomes the poison in the open wound that makes the suffering intolerable. Often the greatest pain doesn't come from the circumstances, it comes from our pride and sense of entitlement in it. Our jealousy for others, our lust for more, our yearning for a different and better life. It's not the what, although the what is very painful. It's often the why. Why me, why now? The what hurts. It's the why me, why now that becomes the poison in the cut. The bitterness that robs us of the ability to heal. God will remove that in the pain. 
God is at work to change us, to sanctify us, to bless us in the process of the pain. God has a purpose in the pain that will turn it into blessing. He brings us through death to bring us into the experience of resurrection. So how do we move toward this new paradigm? How do we stop seeing the world as this ladder that we need to climb, this ladder of self-effort and self-improvement, of, of positive thinking and focused energy? Well, there's a lot to explore here. We're gonna, this model is going to come up again in future messages, but this morning I just want to close with this. We need to avoid the trap of triumphalism. We love triumphalism in Western culture, man. We love this idea of moving from win to win to win. And that, that's the purpose and goal of life, to move from the mountaintop to the mountaintop, to, to win to win, to increase, to grow, to get bigger, to get better, this idea that somehow we're simply supposed to avoid death and avoid pain and avoid suffering. And what ends up happening in the, in the Christian circles is we try to build a ladder from life to resurrection, and just skip the whole death thing, right? We just, we just let's build a ladder from, from here to there, and we sanctify it with Christian language, and we sanctify it with verses pulled out of context, and, 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 and we focus on self-improvement, positive self-talk, self-effort, and it really becomes a self-salvation project. And God doesn't bless our self-salvation projects. It's, it's me improving me. It's me fixing me. It's me gritting it and fighting it, and, and it just doesn't work. That's why we needed a Savior to begin with, one who would walk the path of death and resurrection ahead of us and then invite us into the success he's already won on our behalf. What does it look like when we're trying to build this ladder? Well, we try to work the systems. We try to force God's hand. We we. We, we do the right things in order to get the right things. People who are trapped in triumphalism often have very little tolerance for real pain and suffering because their goal is to fix it and get rid of it. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to just fix it and get rid of it? They often don't know how to enter into their own pain and suffering. They often are, are strangers to their own tears. They don't know how to mourn their own losses or lament their own wounds. They instead skip over it, try to stay above it, move on from it, and they become some of the worst friends when you're in crisis. Because they can't stand to go down there to be with you. They don't know how. What ends up happening is they put a load of self-improvement duties on you when you're hurt and you're broken. They come at you with platitudes like, hey man, you can do all things through Christ. Yeah, thanks, my child is sick and I don't know if they're getting better. Yeah, but you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Yeah, but my marriage is falling apart. Hey, God works all things together for good. Yeah, thanks. See, when we're in pain, we don't need people showing up with truth trying to fix us. We need people who are going to show up with grace 
and love us. See, when people try to fix us, it just heaps shame. When you wake up and you are de- you're so depressed, you can't even get out of bed. You're so hurt, you don't even know how you're going to function today. And then somebody shows up and says, hey, man, if you just believe the right thing, all this pain will go away. If you just know, man, like, that God has a plan, that one day you're going to look back, it's going to be okay, then you'll have the strength to get through today. And you're like, now I feel shame. Thank you. Not only do I feel the pain, but now I feel completely inadequate in my Christian life because I can't do that. They don't need truth used like a hammer. They need grace. They don't need you to speak from up here to down here telling them how to fix things. They need you to come down here and see them eye to eye to sit with them in their sorrow, to meet them in their mourning, to, 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 to have an eye-to-eye human contact that humanizes their suffering and their brokenness and their disappointment. And it brings the salve of grace and the power of love. And it's in that position that you can point them to the resurrection. Not from up here calling them, you know, like, hey, come on up here. No, down there. When you're actually meeting with them face to face, then you have the power. So here's the thing. I don't need you. When I'm suffering, I don't need you to tell me how to fix myself. I need you to remind me who I am and whose I am. I don't need you to come with solutions that are going to fix problems you don't really know how to fix because the woundedness and the brokenness of the world is too complex. Only God can fix that stuff, not you. What I need is for you to show up, not with platitudes, but with love. And then in that place, you can remind me whose I am and who I am, right? When Jesus began his ministry, when he began his path to the cross, it was a three-year path, and it began with with his uh, baptism into ministry. John the Baptist baptized him. The Spirit of God appeared as a dove above his head, and the voice of God spoke from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus began his path to the cross with a reminder of whose he was. On the night that he was betrayed, he was in the garden praying. He was alone because his friends had abandoned him. They didn't know how to enter into his suffering and his pain. He needed the Spirit of God to come in and affirm and comfort him who he was. You are the chosen servant of God, and the path ahead of you is going to hurt more than anything that has ever hurt in all of creation. But you're still the beloved son. You are not alone in your suffering. See, someone can only bring that comfort to my heart when they're in the valley with me, when they're sitting with me. And I know they see me, and I know they love me, and I know they're with me. And they're not trying to fix me, and they're not trying to change me, and they're not trying to, because of their lack of, that's the thing, man. When you're up on the ladder, You have such little tolerance for pain. You have to fix people because you don't have the emotional maturity that it takes to actually sit in sorrow. You have to, in that place, not just cry your tears. You need to cry their tears. You need to just not just mourn your woundedness. You need to mourn theirs. And it is that place you find common comfort. You ever been in deep pain and met somebody who had a very similar pain? 
and then looked across the table at them and simply knew they understood what you were going through. And there's a very strange, inexplicable comfort that comes in that place. It doesn't fix anything. But it reminds me I'm not alone. You guys, we have a high honor of coming alongside our brothers and sisters who are wounded, who are hurting, who are struggling, because this is the replicated process of the Christian life. You don't just go through this once and then suddenly you're resurrected and everything's fixed. (laughs) You do it over and over and over and over again. And sometimes the valley is, is fairly shallow and temporary, and sometimes it is very deep and painful. We need to learn how to find the comfort of Christ in those places, and we will only do that in community. By serving one another, by pointing them to the Christ who's already in the valley. Here's the thing. He, he's gone to a place deeper than you've ever been or ever will go. He knows pain at a level that you will never understand, which means you can never go deeper than he's already there. He will meet you there. The problem is we need to have eyes to see it. We need to have hearts to feel it. We need to be in a place where we're aware of the comfort of the suffering Savior. We will never develop those eyes if we are determined to climb the ladder. We need to learn to sit and lament and mourn And in that place, find comfort, a comfort that no amount of fixing can ever provide. You guys, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul, and every believer since has had to discover this path. But here's the promise. There is glory at the end of it. There is an exaltation that comes from identifying with the suffering Savior. from becoming helpless and finding your help in grace. By becoming broken, or at least acknowledging your brokenness and finding your strength in His wholeness. In turning, when you are completely bankrupt of your self-effort, turning to His strength and actually being encouraged in His love. That doesn't just fix your problem, man. That changes your heart. You start tasting resurrection. You start experiencing transformation. I think we as Western American Christians often undercut the strength of our own faith by our determination to be self-made men and women instead of dependent, humble followers of Christ. You guys, I'm going to close this with a prayer. We're going to share communion together. And uh, we'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us and we'll go into a time of reflection. Father, I thank you that um, you love us, even when we're not aware of it, even when we don't acknowledge it, that we are completely helpless to fix ourselves and dependent on you for the true kind of change we need to experience the fullness of life. But Lord, you don't despise our weakness and you don't despise our pain. You see it. You honor it because you yourself feel it and have felt it. And you invite us into the transformation 
that you've won on our behalf. Father, I pray that you will bring comfort this morning to those who are carrying the pain of deep wounds. Spirit, I pray that you will remind them whose they are, at what price they've been bought, what love has been poured out, that they might be one and changed, that they are new creatures with a new hope and a new future. I pray for those who are walking with others who are wounded, that they might be good friends, that they might not be quick to spout the platitudes to try to fix problems, but will actually be able to meet them face to face, eye to eye, in their sorrow. Let us be a community, Lord, that's moving more deeply into the experience of these truths, growing in grace, growing in love, and growing in true change. Father, make your name great. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.